Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to our summer podcasting studio here in Barcelona. And one of the many amazing things about being in a place like Barcelona or just living this lifestyle in general is friends passing through the city just like old times and those long form hangs when everybody's sort of out of their daily routines or out of their home country, out of the day to day. And you just get to spend an incredible amount of time just hanging out and sharing ideas, sharing information. And it takes time for relationships to build. That's been the theme so far of of being in Europe for me is being able to spend time with people that mean a great deal to me. And one of those people is returning TMBA guest, an amazing entrepreneur, Travis Jameson. So today we roped him onto the show with the promise of some tapas and wine after. So just some quick background. Travis founded his SEO agency, Smash Digital, 10 years ago on this very podcast. And since that time, he's gone on to be a multi-time founder, notably exiting AMZ Tracker, a SaaS for Amazon sellers for a life-changing sum, a story we told here on this very pod, which we'll link up in the show notes. He has gone on to be, in his own words, primarily a capital allocator. But in my words, he's been an incredible positive force in the entrepreneurial community over the years, always thoughtful, always direct, always kind. And I've personally seen him donate his expertise and experience countless times with no ask in return. Today is the same. Today, he helps entrepreneurs through his SEO agency, Smash, and as an investor at smash.vc. So today we've got the man trapped in the podcast studio, and we got to cover a lot. From our summer theme of working in Europe to why Travis thinks agencies are highly underrated business models, to investing in small businesses. And we'll get to all that, but we started off with a larger global story and one that Travis has a great deal of experience in, crypto. I wanna read back some of your scribblings to you and see what you think about them in retrospect. Back in March probably wrong. 18th of 2020, you wrote, I feel so disappointed seeing the somewhat preventable economic dumpster fire that is upon us now. Of course, the stock market started pumping crazily just a few months later. And now here we are again, everybody's using the R word. I'm curious, what's your take on what happened in the last couple of years? There's just too much money. I don't know. Everything was just so crazy. I mean, and I don't hate on the Fed as much as a lot of people do. I think they screwed up at the end a lot. But like, All right, so 2020 happened, COVID came, everything collapsed, and they pumped a crap ton of money into the system. I think it's probably a good thing. Like, otherwise, it would have been a Great Depression. Just like in 2008. Yeah, they did a bunch of crazy stuff and bailed out these banks and what a bunch of shitty things. But what's the alternative? Food lines. They just kept going for too long. Like, all the economic indicators were saying, we're good. Not everybody's good. This This is true. Not everybody was good. But like the nation, the economies of the world are in a pretty good spot. Definitely the U.S. We should slow this down. And they didn't. And I think that was more political than anything, most likely. 
and so I was very concerned about inflation in 2021 and was uh, deploying a lot more of my capital into things because of that. Like what things? Into the DeFi space, um, a lot of different funds, real estate funds, like the stock market, just absolutely everything. Um, and then I felt the crypto top coming. I saw the craziness. You see like shark feeding frenzy type of thing going on and you get out. And so I've been very cash heavy for uh, most of 2022. Um, and cash has been like the best investment possible because everything is just lost against it. And you see a lot of the crypto bros out there saying, oh, cash is still losing 7% a year. I'm like, not really. Again, my food is up 7%, but like everything else is down 30. So my cash is up compared to your assets. Right, um, right. Yeah, and you can't buy unlimited food. That's the problem with it, right? You have to buy it as it comes. So that's the problem with it going up 7%, but you can buy houses or some of these other assets. By the way, uh, the euro today just dipped below a dollar. Wow. Uh, and I saw the best tweet I've seen in probably six months, which Ooh. is, uh, we call it soccer. Now deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain to us what DeFi summer was? So there was DeFi summer, then there was like, I don't know, the year after that, which is kind of, I think all blends together. It was a time when there was just stupid amounts of y yield available or, or just, I don't know, token appreciation or whatever. But everyone was thinking like the future of France, as they call it, the future of finance um, was upon us. And so there was all this money to be made. And there was, um, but none of it was real. I never drank the Kool-Aid for any of it. I just spotted like, this is a amazing once in a lifetime opportunity. Can you describe the mechanics of that? Because on this show, I would allude to it occasionally. I would say things like, uh, we have a lot of friends that have like put down the reins of their business for the next six months and they're just going to sit on some discord somewhere and figure out how to move tokens around. And this was a real thing. It was not just, there's a lot of people that we knew doing this. I did a lot of that. I mean, I still have my other businesses and investments, but uh, I would say half of my time went towards DeFi because it was just so insanely lucrative. And I said this before the, it even collapsed. I was like, I can't wait for this to go away. But, <laughs> and, but it was like, it's just so lucrative. How do you not take advantage of it? It's like, oh, there's a $100 bill at the end of this hallway. I'm like, well, I'm going to go and run and get it. And then they keep doing this for days on end. And if you stop, the $100 bills will stop appearing. And so you're just running back and forth to this hallway all day and all night long for as long <laughs> as you can. So that, that's kind of how I looked at it. Could you describe like uh, how one transaction might go down? Like what your workload might be during this DeFi summer? Different people do different things. For me, I, I was far more interested in the yields than token appreciation and stuff like that. Uh, but just finding places that were, I don't know, maybe I could park some USDC in something for 50% APR type of thing. Or sometimes you would find these, we'll call them, they're called pool twos, new projects that are minting like 100,000% APR. And that is a very special game where you're, you're getting diluted and the value is going down, but the APR is so high. And so you're having to do some math, when to go and what to do. It's so much early information based. You get these things early. How would that information trickle down? Like, is there's a group of hackers somewhere that have 
decided they're going to launch a token that has X value proposition. How does that information get to investors like you before it gets to people in the Valley that dump their big money into it? It really depends. There's a lot of like the Discord groups and whatnot. There's a lot of alpha on Twitter, crypto Twitter. I don't think there's that much anymore because there's not as much happening right now. Um, there's a lot of that private groups. I'm part of a Slack group. I have my own group with it. Um, people just, you just make these connections and figure out where it's coming from. And then you have this stream. And so I had an assistant actually who was rounding this stuff up and delivering reports for me because um, it got too much. Um, you know, we saw the ICO craze and then we saw DeFi summer. Basically now looking back on that time frame, how has your view of BTC and ETH changed, if at all? I think I believe in all of it less than ever before. Um, I don't want to say I don't believe in it at all. I think this is such the lame answer that everyone gives, but I do think the technology is quite useful. Like, I don't know, all the banks in the world should probably have some sort of private blockchain so that they can communicate and I can send a wire transfer without it taking two days. Yeah. But I don't know, like, let's take the Bitcoin thesis. First, it was going to, you know, replace normal money transactions. And we're like, well, it doesn't actually work. And then it was gold, which is, I think it's probably best suited for. Then it was an inflation hedge. That didn't work at no. all. <laughs> um, again, holding U.S. dollars is the best thing you could have done, um, yeah. at least in 2022. ETH is complicated. Um, some people like to say it's maybe it's Amazon.com on the ground floor type of thing. Um, or it's closer to the infrastructure of the, the next internet. The question I always ask is like, okay, I could buy that maybe. I don't by the way, but I'll buy your argument, but why is ETH worth what it is? Why is it undervalued right now? Quote unquote, undervalued. Um, and no one could tell me. ETH works just as well as $100 as it does $1,000. And you would even think over time as they build more and more of these like layer two protocols that just settle on ETH instead of using ETH all the time that the, the demand to use ETH would go down. Um, there's no price pressure on it. Like none of these things make sense. Like there's just no reason for most of the tokens. I think the best use case and like the one true thing that a lot of this blockchain stuff is solving is just decentralized money, not decentralized store of value, not the next web. It really is just, it's, it's decentralized money. It's, it's money that's outside of a system. Like you can send it to whoever you want to, you can, do whatever you want to with it. In developed nations, we don't have to worry about this type of like confiscation as much. But like, I don't know if you're in Ukraine, you could get all your money into, you know, the, so we, the cloud and then the escape. Good for you. And that would be an interesting next evolution. So we don't really have that, right? We don't really have just true currency that we can kick around and depend on. Well, that's not tied to nation states, right? Like, you have so like Bitcoin Lightning Network, stuff like that. Like there's solutions that are, you have stable coins, you, know, you have, Solutions that are sort of poking around at the... So many people have tried to build the decentralized stable coins and some of them are working thus far, but also UST, it worked for a long time yeah. until it didn't. There's such a story of greed behind all this, right? Like, yes. why do we need tokens? Greed. Why can't we have a transparent stable coin that just has assets to back greed, right? Because there's an opportunity for those people to become billionaires, they're going to take it. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily against having 
some connection to the centralized world. I think you have to. So I think I heard this. Surely this isn't from my own head. It was talking about, you heard a lot of people say like real estate should be on the blockchain, right? Make everything easier. And it would make a lot of things easier, but how do you get it on there? There's a lot of questions that I don't think have good answers. So let's start with, you're going to put your house on the blockchain. They're all going to be there. So you go to, I don't know, see Sally, this like minimum wage receptionist, and she's going to be in charge of making sure that all these records are absolutely perfect for this immutable blockchain that will last all eternity. I don't know about that. And then there's all the questions of, you know, what happened to get liquidated? Can you trade? What, whatever. There's all this other stuff that like, I still think just good answers. And that's fine. You don't have to be. Yeah. You can just be decentralized money and maybe just the decentralized casino. That could really just be enough for people to play all these, you know, Ponzi casino games that are out there. Um, yeah. And maybe I'm wrong. And in 20 years, look back and be like, wow, what a dummy. He didn't see any of this stuff coming. Well, it's maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think that there is something weird about the way that real estate is conducted now. Like you pay the 3% on both sides. You have this contract that's like, I think it's kept like somewhere in the county. Like they have this big document that says Travis owns this piece of property. We use notaries. Yeah, it's super antiquated. But durable. It is durable. But you can see why people would want to turn that into a technology solution and why it could even make more sense. But I think you're right to say that the mechanics and like the history and the legacy of breaking down that system, it's very hard to do, especially if you're going to start involving municipalities and governments. Um, I think we all agree it could be far more efficient, but doesn't necessarily need some token to make it all work and some blockchain technology to make it all work. Like just a more efficient database system everyone agrees to use or something like that. The biggest thing that it sounds like came out of uh, that time period was uh, a lot of people made money yourself, basically day trading. When the chips fell to the ground, it's like, was there actually value created outside of that ecosystem? Uh, I think that sounds pretty accurate. I don't know how much value was created. Truly don't. NFTs, which I'm a huge hater on <laughs> most NFT stuff. I do. I own two. You have a crypto punk, right? Yeah, I got a punk and I got a lazy lion that I like. And man, the lazy lion. Most of those people kind of annoy me, I'm going to be honest. If you're a lazy lion person, I'm not sorry. Uh, <laughs> but uh, let's rant on NFTs. Why not? Let's do this. Yeah, It's digital art, right? That's the claim. I bought this beautiful painting in Mexico, at the, the DC event in Mexico. Um, and I love it. I bought it because I wanted the art. No one was buying NFTs because they liked the art. 99.99% of people were buying it to flip it a month later for more. Unless you like 8-bit characters, which I think none of us do for the most part. Yeah, there was cool stuff. But, I mean, there was, there was amazing, beautiful things. I was at the, the, I don't know, Modern Art Museum in Barcelona this past weekend. They had an NFT section. And it was like, they had three kind of like video NFTs. And they were so, they were beautiful. They were amazing. But that's rare. Like everyone was just flipping stuff. It, there wasn't anything real in it. And maybe the technology makes a lot of sense for, you know, I don't know, Taylor Swift to release her next album or something like that. Like, yeah, I get it. But the the original use cases of this stuff was all trash, all trash, all speculation. And I'm not against speculation if you know what it is. And that's fine. I played this DeFi summer. I knew what all this stuff was. 
I didn't believe any of it. It's when you think it's real and it's not. That's when people get in trouble. And this little green man profile picture is going to be the future. Um, well, you approached it with a bunch of skepticism and also you approached it as an investor. Like you didn't have some kind of belief system here. You just kind of saw it for the slot machine that it was. And quite frankly, like you could afford to buy the crypto punk and it could go to zero and it wasn't going to kill you. I mean, there's a lot of people that got demolished by this whole thing. I've talked to a lot of people, just a lot of you know, pretty successful people that had just put all their stuff into, you know, the anchor protocol for that 20% a year yield. People putting their like parents' retirement funds and stuff like that in there. Oh, it's a safe guaranteed 20%. I'm like, they're wrecked. Uh, so when something like this happens again, Travis, because certainly it will, like this stuff is so cyclical. Like, I was going to say, that's the only thing we can predict yeah, is that it will happen again. In two years from now, everybody's going to forget about this. Just like, you know, Coins, ICOs, like whatever it is, the next thing, because there's going to be a next thing, right? Mm -hmm. People are going to come up with these protocols. They're going to make a bunch of money. Greed's going to come back in. It's going to bubble back up once people have forgot about it. Like, what's the approach? Like, how do you not get wrecked and burned if you want to participate in this? I think mentally stepping back and like evaluating if you can, if you don't get, I think getting like swept up in it is where all the problems come from. Nothing really changes. You know, investments are always the same. If something's not producing cash, eventually speculation goes away. Look at all these tech companies. Look at Peloton, stuff like that. You know, all of these stocks got demolished. It was built on hope for a while. Eventually, reality comes back. Um, it always does. I don't know if I have any great tips for anyone. Um, ride the wave if you want to, but I think it's where people get in trouble is where they just believe it um, 100%. Or get too concentrated in it. Like all the people like are in the Luna anchor stuff, their life savings, their parents' life savings, that type of stuff. Like you diversify your way out of that big time. So when I was so deep in the DeFi, like I was very diversified in a bajillion different products, different tokens, different chains, all this stuff. Um, I don't want one thing blowing up, like destroying my livelihood. And that's how I approach all these things, like all of my investments and everything. I concentrate on tons of different sources of cash flow, tons of different stuff everywhere because I want to sleep all night. Um, like whenever whatever happens, I'm good. And so when I'm riding that next wave and there will be another wave, there always is. I'll play it the same way, hopefully. All right. So enough of the macro. So one of the reasons Travis is in Barcelona is, of course, to be on this podcast today. I'd love to believe that. <laughs> uh, but also, Travis has long been an advocate of Barcelona as a hub for digital nomads, and some of his wife's family lives here. And so like many of us former full-time nomads and still part-time nomads and now sort of slash nomads, he's thinking about how to organize his life these days in this new post-COVID environment when there's just the chips have fallen in different places and there's new options and opportunities. I think I had an interesting realization the other day. Probably this is the case in much of Europe, but definitely in Spain. There's a friction to everything you do here. Nothing is generally super easy. But I kind of realized that's part of the charm, if that makes sense. Like in the US, I just like click a couple buttons on my phone and my groceries show up in 30 minutes. And here, like you have to walk to do it. And like, that's not a bad thing. Like, I think that kind of adds to the charm overall. And like, maybe adds to like long-term happiness in many ways. Do you think your business career would have been different if you would have spent it here in Spain versus in Asia? Probably, yeah. I don't think it would have been as productive. Why? I don't think it's easy to like crush out 
stupid amounts of work here just because no one's doing it. You know, it's very like, like this co-working space, which is an awesome place. 5 p.m. comes to ghost town. What, 7 p.m. they turn off the lights? I mean, there's a few lights. People, <laughs> there are people that work till 11. There's not many of them. They're, you know, Americans work in American hours, but yeah, it's just not in the culture. So how important is, you said, quote, crushing out a lot of work. How important do you think that is to success? Intellectually, I want to say that it's not necessary. Uh, intellectually, I want to look back on what I did and be like, if I had done the 80-20 here in all these cases, like I would end up in the exact same place. But if I put that aside a little bit, I'm not so sure that's true. Like, I don't know too many people who just crushed it, who didn't just work themselves silly. And in fact, Travis, you're here on a work detox. Yes. <laughs> he, well, he just twitched for those. <laughs> yeah. So you came into our co-working space the first day and you're like, yeah, this is cool, guys. But, you know, I don't really see myself working that much while I'm here. I got my mm. family here. You know, I'm trying to de-stress. I'm trying to work less. And then didn't see you for two or three days. And I saw you the next day. And then I saw you the next day here. And then you have a membership here now. So how's that going? <laughs> It is going really well, surprisingly enough. I don't mind being my laptop because I'm doing things that are intellectually stimulating. It's more like, am I working towards stuff I don't need to be doing? Um, which can include just business in general. And definitely the overall amount of hours that I'm spending here. When you guys see me get here? Two or three in the afternoon? Leave at six? It's a good life. But this is, it's very difficult for me to not work. Like, like it's a problem. But for so long, I just pushed and pushed and pushed to, to try and like get to these next levels. Maybe it was the right move. Maybe it wasn't, but I kind of forgot how to enjoy myself. You know, my hobbies atrophied. I forgot how to be normal. And so I'm having to like relearn it. It's a weird thing. It's also a pattern I think we've observed over the years where you start off working class, right? It's one of the themes of this show is how to go from the working class to the wealth class. And just, uh, Travis, you started off as a bartender, so very much working class. Grew up in North Carolina. And you surround yourselves in these entrepreneurial communities where it's not strange just to be on your laptop at 11 o'clock at night and to turn the lights back on. You work your way up into this new class of person and you sort of reemerge back into society at a certain point. People, you want to be normal, right? You want to have hobbies. You want to have a family. And a lot of us sort of put that stuff on the back burner for many years. Yeah, I think the point for definitely for us and for most people in our circle was never to like drive Lambos and have jets. It's just to be able to have the freedom to do what you want to do and the freedom not do what you don't want to do. But once you get that, what's next? I look at my life and I think I've got my life under control pretty well. Like financially and business wise, I've done pretty well. Like my, I have good health. I have good relationships. I have good family. Then what? Maybe this is who I am naturally. And I think I am naturally maybe some of it's been learned uh but i'm you're always striving for more instead of just existing i think i told you guys you're like well what are you going to do and i'm like i'm not sure i'm going to create space i'm going to create a vacuum and like <laughs> see what happens but part of this lifestyle can be problematic travis like maybe you experienced certainly i've experienced it at times which is you've bought yourself all this freedom whether it's like physical freedom or financial freedom. And then you're trying to figure out like what to opt into next. And I think part of the reason why we do this podcast is because there's really not a roadmap 
It's like first time in history you've been able to travel to like every continent whenever you want, like work from wherever you want, like have all these freedoms, like eat all this different food. And now we're forced with what happens when I can do that? I've afforded myself that. Congratulations. It's like, well, who's with me? Travis, in some ways chose a very durable path, which is like you moved back to your hometown and you bought the biggest house in it. Describe it how you want to describe it. But I feel like that's a very typical thing is like you give back to the community or you exist as an elder in the community from whence you came. It's interesting being back. I don't even necessarily feel like I belong there all the time. And it's not like I'm this pillar of community. Like, I don't think I see that many people too often. I have, I have some old friends that I see that I really very much enjoy. And I see my family more, which is, is awesome. I'm not sure where I feel like I belong. It's an interesting thing. Um, but one thing that's come to my head is the idea of like multiple home bases. Um, kind of like barbelling it in a sense. And like that. Explain what barbelling means. The way Taleb described it originally was like from an investment point of view, which is you imagine the barbell, you know, I think you put weights on, you bench press with, um, you put the weights on each side. And so in Taleb's thing, it was like one side is very, very safe investments, like treasury bonds type of thing. And the other side are, are very like high risk, high reward types of things. And the idea is kind of like avoid the middle of the road stuff. Like if you're doing everything in the middle of the road stuff, that's how people get destroyed. The barbell idea kind of applies to a lot more things. So it's basically like advocating for polarized approach. Yeah. Because in the middle, it's typically a more chronic approach where you need positive returns more consistently if you're in the middle because you're not going to see dramatic shifts. Yes. But also we can take it outside of Taleb's context, but you miss out on stuff. So you try and find a city that has kind of everything. It has some rural, beautiful nature stuff. It has some big city stuff. It's got all things. What are you looking for? It'll tend to be a little subpar in everything. And so I look at my hometown of Asheville. It's this beautiful place in the mountains. Like I have these amazing trails like in my community. It's, it's rural, suburban awesomeness. But there's also a lot of stuff missing from that. Like it's a good city. It has a good food scene at least and stuff like that. But there's a lot of buzz not happening. There's a yeah. lot of city life not happening. Uh, and so maybe pairing that with a place like living in Barcelona, actually been looking at apartments or condos and stuff like that. It's but, also a very durable idea. Summer home, city house, you know, your city stronghold, your weekend cottage, and then your summer getaway. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me. And it didn't before. So one of the reasons after I was nomadic for, what, 10 years almost? Um and the later years, you know, it was very much like staying in one place for like a year or two at a time. It wasn't like hopping around in a backpack. But the problem that I had was like, I felt like everything was so transient. And so like, I see my good friends or I make good friends and then we hang out for a couple of months and then they leave and I don't know when I'm going to see them again. And so it's kind of hard to, to build these things. And so I was kind of looking for like, I want some sort of stability to build over the decades. And I think I maybe kind of missed that balancing that is is the sweet spot. Um, so you can still have that, but it doesn't have to be all the time. You're not going to find just one thing that's now the solution till the end of time. It doesn't exist. 
Monday. Monday. What's faster than a top fuel dragster down the quarter mile? Your business when you use Dynamite Jobs Recruiting to supercharge your cash flow engine. Strap in, gas up, and let the profits flow. If your hiring is slow or falling off track, supercharge your strategy with a zero to 30 minute phone call with our legends of the hard sell. They'll dazzle you with high pressure, career killing sales tactics, urgency, urgency, persistence, auto dealership desperation. And then tell me you could use a little more of these in your pursuit of business excellence. Operations managers in Omaha, marketing mavens in Marbella, coding wizards in Cape Town. We're taking this race global. Thanks to the support of listeners like you, it's not just a hard driving EN closing showing at the wheel anymore. We've got a whole team at your service. This Monday. Monday. Let's outrun your competition with an insanely profitable hire from Dynamite Jobs. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on remote recruiting. So you might be the most frequent guest on this podcast of all time. So mm-hmm. give us the 40,000 foot view of your career. All right. So went from, I don't know, just bartender while I was building the first businesses to a supplement business, then to an SEO company, a few other small businesses in there, another supplement business, SaaS company. Then I started having some exits and sold a few of these. Still have a few small businesses. I've bought some and sold some. Now I'm pretty much just a capital allocator in this stuff. And then talk to, you know, the people who run my companies here and there. One of the things when I look back on your appearances on the show, we talk a lot about services on this business, but you launched a services business very near around the first time you joined up on the very first time you joined us on the, on the pod. At the time it was called Supremacy SEO. You've rebranded to Smash Digital a few years ago and you still have the business You talk about it fondly. Love it. And you've done all the other stuff that everybody wants to do. You've exited a SaaS for a bunch of money. You've sold all kinds of uh, scalable products on on, uh, e-commerce stores. Yet you still hold on to the agency. And I'm wondering, we could dig into why and why do you love it? All right. So I am a fan of agencies. And I think someday the narrative will will flip and suddenly... The FBA stuff won't be as sexy and like service businesses will come back in style. Well, the reasons I love it, one, it's an SEO agency. So it's always been something that I actually like. Like I enjoy SEO. I still enjoy SEO. I have no business doing this myself, but I'll still fire up HRFs and like dig through stuff and whatnot. And just because I don't know, I like it. So there's that. It's also, it's such a great business model in terms of cash flow. Like people pay us and then we do things. There's no inventory flow. Like I'm an e-commerce company, like, oh, we buy the inventory, put it down the down payment, and maybe six months later, we have this product to sell, and it takes a few months later to actually sell it. That's a lot of cash flow just sitting all the time. Then you're tempted to get more inventory too. Yeah, yeah. you want to grow, guess what? Eats more cash. Yeah, by the way, now I have a half a million dollars just that I can't touch, essentially. It's always wrapped up. One of the benefits to selling your e-commerce company is you get all that cash out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like become this little savings, this very high risk savings account yeah. just sitting there. Okay. There's a couple of key challenges I want to maybe get your thoughts on how you've addressed them. The first is how do you not get stressed out about client workload and stuff like that? Why do you not take on the burdens and the emotional challenges that your clients bring to your desk? I am not involved with any of the day-to-day stuff. I think it is absolutely key. If you want to grow and scale to other things or to be bigger, like you can't be working in the service business, uh, which I did very much at first, for several years, it was me. Um, I have really good people working for me. 
like world-class SEOs and just world-class people. But it's kind of rare, right? That you own a services-based business and then you don't provide the service because that's the way most of the people get into the agency game because they're like, hey, I'm really good at executing this service. I'm going to start an agency. I'm going to like basically fractionalize myself out to these companies. And then they never find somebody as good as them. They're like, well, I'm the best at SEO. So how could I ever get out of this? But you figured out a way to essentially get yourself out of these businesses, pay the people that work for you well, and then still gain a profit. I could say for me that my interests change a lot. I think I'm very good at starting companies and getting scaled up, and then I'm very bad at running them. And so it just makes more sense for everyone involved, including my staff and everybody, if I'm not the one calling the shots. Um, and I think things will work better if like a non-entrepreneur is running it. And to be clear, my team, they're pretty entrepreneurial. Like They're entrepreneurs in, in their own right, even though they're working for me, but they still are. If I'm the owner and the boss and the person running it, then maybe I won't feel like I have to do this or push things in certain certain ways. I'm like, well, I'll do that later. Or I'll go mess with this other business, which is what I would do. I would go, let's, let's start something else. And that kind of business, <laughs> the service business would kind of wither away. We talk about this a lot, which is like the separation of church and state. We're trying to do this in our organization right now, which is like the person that's selling the product can't necessarily be the person that's delivering the product because the incentives get all messed up. It's like you create a bunch of work for yourself through the sales process and then you don't want to turn around and actually do the work. And also, Travis, I'll disagree with you. You say you're like interests change a lot, but in fact, you contradicted yourself a little bit, which is like you actually are interested in SEO for like the last 10 or 15 years. You still log into Ahrefs, things like that. And I think that that's probably part of the reason why that agency is still successful is because these are things that you're not actively interested in like 10 hours a day, but you have a full career of SEO expertise and you're still reading about it, learning about it, interested enough to kind of own the asset. And I think you probably get to a certain level where that makes sense. It's like, hey, I have all this knowledge for the last 10 years. I'm going to start an agency. I don't need to be in it all day, every day, but I am interested enough in it that I can kind of manage these people in this deal flow. Yeah. It makes sense for me to keep doing SEO or keeping up with SEO, but not to do client work. Maybe the same thing could be said for your supplement business. I don't know, which is you have all this expertise in supplements, right? And all this expertise in selling them and making them and marketing them. It's like very easy for you to come up with another one, add it to the stack kind of thing. I mean, I think like when I look at Danamize careers, like we kind of abandoned the product and e-commerce thing. I think like the longer you own these things, the easier it is to kind of yeah. throw wood onto the fire and keep it going. And it seems like a lot of these projects that you've started... 10 years ago are kind of still going. I mean, they might have like a different name or they might take on like a little bit of a different form, but you're kind of doing a lot of the same things that you were doing 10 years ago. Yeah, uh, you said something interesting. We can circle back to what we're talking about, but um, you talked about your e-commerce company, like your product company and like how you're not in it anymore and some of that, maybe that skills atrophy type of thing. I think I have a really extreme example, which is FBA. Tell us a little bit about the SaaS company to set some context. It was, uh, it's called AMD Tracker. It was just a, SaaS for Amazon sellers to help them sell more. They got really big. And we told that story on this podcast in 2019. So mm. if someone wants to listen to that, they can click into the show notes here. But the whole point of this was, I was an FBA expert. I'm giving the interviews on how to do stuff. I don't know anymore. So the guy who runs my supplement company, Tony, he's awesome and he's really good at this stuff. And sometimes he'll make me log into Amazon Seller Central to do things. 
and I don't know how to find the stuff anymore. <laughs> like, I am just not that person. I'm not the FBA expert. Tony does everything in the business. He grows it, makes strategy, handles finances. He does all that. I come up with products and like put their initial formulation together. And then we pass it off to a PhD to like do the technical research and stuff to make sure I'm not wrong. Um, and then go from there. But you don't keep with it. It disappears. Back to the agency bit. What about the problem of you have a payroll every month, but that sales can go up and down? How have you solved that problem? This is a common uh, complaint about services businesses. We stay really cash flow heavy. And I do kind of do the profit first type of... Uh, can you explain how that works? Yeah. Let's say you're trying to save money. And if you just take what's left over at the end of the month and put it in your savings account, you'll never really have anything for a lot of people. But if you automate your savings to go at like the first of the month or whenever the paycheck comes out and then spend what's left over, you'll end up, you'll be fine either way, but you'll have a lot more savings. Well, same type of thing in business. Definitely for me, if I pay myself out of the business first, like here's my salary that goes into my account automatically and then whatever's left over, we can reinvest. It, it does way better um, because I can reinvest forever if you're given the chance. I'm curious, with this profit first philosophy, I think it's really interesting. I've been digging into all kinds of business philosophy lately because we're having all these challenges of like how to structure this new style of business. And one of the rules of thumbs I've always heard in the space is like, if you're running a service business, you have 30% labor as a target. And then 30% would be sort of administrative overhead cog stuff. And then you got that kind of 10% of who knows, let's mm. fucking business and the, the money disappeared. And then you got 20% as your profit margin. What do you think of that makeup? Is that aggressive enough? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know what it is for our business. I don't necessarily care, but that's not my strengths either. Um, what I'm hearing from you, Travis, is that you have an extremely high profit margin. <laughs> so you don't have to pay too much attention to it. We have a good profit margin, but it's just a good diversified business into things. The other thing that's like not coming out like super clear on this podcast is just how many revenue streams you have. I mean, I don't know. Do I you, a lot. Yeah, a lot. Like at least 10, maybe? Is that too many? Mm, no, no. 10, 10 sounds about right. Yeah. So, I mean, when you have 10 revenue streams that probably look like uh, individuals' personal incomes, most individuals' personal incomes on a monthly basis... You don't really have to pay that much attention to this stuff. Maybe you can be a little bit looser, right? But like a lot of people listening to this show, probably starting their first business or maybe they have one business, right? And it's like, you've really got to look at the spreadsheets. Like this is the only income I have. So maybe they're doing things like uh, taking your advice, like, hey, I'm going to peel off the profit and give it to myself at first. But like you can literally do that in 10 businesses right now, which I think is very unique. But even say if you're starting out, like I look at my first businesses, which you know, did have more difficulties. But what's the mapping out? Like, I don't know. I got to buy inventory. Let's do some rough calculations for that and then plan for that. It's not that much, really. Um, what about the holy grail of SaaS software? Was it similar there? Did you use more sophistication to grow AMZ Tracker? I think I should have used more sophistication on this one. So to give the background, this business was a rocket ship. And I didn't know what I didn't know at the time. I could have used some guidance. Um, this was my first big thing and made a bunch of money, life-changing, awesome, but left a lot on the table. Um, yeah, but that also was the first, such a good learning lesson. 
I think I'm a fantastic founder and I think I'm a terrible manager. I always say it and I really honestly think it's true. And that also, let's not even call manager, I'm a bad CEO. I would try to do too much of the stuff myself and inside of my head and don't communicate it really well. Uh, the communication is huge when you're CEO and like, you know, setting these goals and the next paths and getting everybody on the same page. And that's just not really what I do very well, I don't think. So that was part of it. Um, my organization is, is better now, at least personally, um, after a lot of work, uh, but still not good enough to like run a full company type of thing. Do you think that's kind of why I think in your career now, I see you kind of trending towards these like financial instruments that don't necessarily need several employees? Yes. I mean, that's one of the reasons. Also, just have, you have to deploy capital eventually and you can't just do it in individual businesses. Um, so, I mean, you guys don't have Smash VC. Like, I want to deploy capital in anyone small business that like makes sense. And it's just hard to find good places to put that. Why? All right. So for background, those that don't know, the Smash VC model is if you have a small business, maybe you want to sell 10 or 20% of it. Like take some chips off the table, buy a house, get a bigger savings account, whatever. I'll buy that from you and be like this quiet minority partner. And maybe my agency will help uh, you grow, but you know, it doesn't have to be. It's whatever. So there's that. And it's expanded some to now like, hey, maybe you're buying a business with a SBA loan and you need a minority partner for some funding. Like I can come in at 10, 20% type of thing. But it's just hard to find people who want to do these deals. Uh, I see a lot of crazy like valuation expectations. Like, oh, it's like a funding round. Like, mm. you know, like, a, you know, it's an angel investment. I'm like, value my business at $5 million pre-money. I'm like, no, guys, this is a small business. No, you're never going to be worth $5 million, much less a billion dollars. Like, no, this is a small business. You base it on the profit and... uh I pay a little bit. You basically take like, what would you pay uh, for this entire business? And I make that a little bit larger since I'm just just quiet minority person and then buy in at that, you know, ratio. How do you think deploying money into companies is changing? And what are you doing about it? Well, for me, I'm planning on like, in terms of venture investments, you know, six months to a year from now might be just the sweet spot to start going in because like venture valuations, they're reset they're reset hard already. And if somebody's trying to raise money right now, like follow on rounds, it can be pretty ugly. But venture investments are a long-term thing. You know, seven to 10 years, average type of thing they say, or whatever. For the big wins, take that long at least. Yeah. Uh, and so six, 12 months from now, the valuations will still be at the bottom, I think, I'm predicting. But by the time they need to raise their follow on round, Maybe the markets have woken up. And then after that, it's fine. So the, by the time you start getting toward liquidity again, hopefully the, you're in a good spot. How is venture investing different from cash flow investing from your perspective? It's, they're not even in the same ballpark. Uh, and so this is another like barbelled example, us both. Uh, for me, so like Taleb uses, you know, your money is super safe, like, you know, government bonds and stuff. I view a very well diversified small business portfolio as super safe. You know, I have tons of different streams of cash. Half of those can go away and I'm just fine. But those are just based on cash flow multiples type of thing. These are small businesses that will never be worth more than, I don't know, a few million at their best, which I'm fine with. Um, 
where the venture stuff is very much like, you know, very high risk, high reward. I think a lot of my early venture investments were not very good because I was trying to play the middle of the road. Like, oh, well, this is, this seems like it won't be, it'd be harder to fail type of thing. Um, like, yeah, maybe the win won't be as big, but it looks pretty safe for a venture investment. And I think that was just terrible thought process. Um, it sounded good on paper, but in reality, like, man, all the big VCs are right. It's all power laws. Like you just go for the ones like, can he be worth a billion dollars and write that check? Like what can go right versus what can go wrong? Um, and as like a very big skeptic, like I look at what can go wrong a lot more. Um, and so for the venture stuff, you have to flip it. And, and I haven't done near as much venture stuff the last few years either. One valuations were insane to me, but also like it's very illiquid and the, the cash flow stuff makes a lot more sense to my brain. I'm still making them, uh, but uh, very rarely am I writing the checks directly. I'm going through, you know, people with funds or something like that more and more. One of the concerns that we've talked about over the years, like with, you know, funding cash flow businesses, if you're doing it direct, is the friction between the operator or the owner's income versus like your uh, cash flow portion that you're entitled to as an investor. Have you encountered that friction in the past and how do you deal with it? I don't think I've encountered friction about it. Uh, like earlier, my kind of like smash VC style uh, investments, we didn't really like build in salaries. It's just like, oh, you get your cut uh, because that's how I always did it myself, um, which is just me being silly and not knowing any better. Um, <laughs> now, you know, we build in healthy salaries for all of these and they deserve it. Like it's, it's really reasonable. I haven't had any issues with any of this stuff. It makes sense. So if you own 20% of the company, they're getting market rate for being president, CEO. Yeah. And then they get their 70% equity share and you get your 30% or whatever. Yeah. On top. I want to ask you to reflect on something you tweeted recently. One of my single best investments in life is simply trying to learn how to stop keeping score with others. Focusing on an internal scorecard is everything. I quite literally cannot win a game of life if I focus on others. One-upsmanship, possessions, benchmarks. It's hard though. What's the internal scorecard? I think Naval said something like this in terms of like a single player game versus multiplayer game. It's easy for us to play the multiplayer game but the hardest game but it's also the game that's the most fulfilling is the single player one where you're just playing against yourself and playing against yourself isn't necessarily okay i'm making more money i'm winning or i got this thing it's happiness however whatever that means to you or fulfillment so many thanks to the one and only Travis Jameson, owner of SmashDigital.com. Check them out for your SEO. Uh, they've been an incredible supporter of the show. They were started on the show. They continue to serve listeners of this show uh, with their incredible passion for SEO and their no-bullshit approach. Of course, Travis uh, is also a prolific investor and entrepreneurial mind. Hit him up over at smashvc.com. And just a genuine thank you to Travis for being such a positive presence in our community, the DC, over the years. He's just so, so much fun to hang out with. So I'm going to get back to doing that. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We'll be back as always next week, Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.